Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. For years, the idea of affordable, accessible housing has been the missing ingredient for thousands of Connecticut residents working toward a better life for themselves. That's a big deal in a state where income inequality is nearly the worst in the nation. So this year, we've been taking a close look at housing in our state, our efforts to end chronic homelessness, and to make more housing available to more residents. One big barrier in the way are zoning laws. We'll be talking about their history and how they play out on a daily basis with our housing and homelessness contributor, Susan Campbell, in just a bit. But first, we're going to take a look back at 2015 in housing. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Later in the show, we're also going to learn about a new tool from ProPublica that helps you to vet some of those year-end charitable contributions, something I know a lot of us are trying to make this time of the year. First, I want to welcome back to the program Katie Schaefer, who's a policy analyst with the Partnership for Strong Communities. They've uh, put together a new report on housing in Connecticut, looking back at 2015. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So first of all, why don't you describe what is in this report and what, what it was you were looking at? Sure. So this year's Housing in Connecticut highlights momentous strides made towards ending homelessness, including becoming the first state to end chronic homelessness among veterans, as well as reports the continuing and serious need for more affordable housing choices in the state for moderate-income families, for millennials, for baby boomers, as well as to support those existing those exiting homelessness so that they will not be pushed back into housing instability. What we're seeing is that there continues to be an enormous lack of synchronicity between the existing housing supply and the demands of a fundamentally changed demographic. Okay, so what are the big barriers in your way? Sounds like some good news, some bad news, but let's talk about the things that uh, that we need to overcome here. Sure. Well, because of the way the states developed, most of the housing was built from 1970 on for the baby boomer population and their then growing families. So what we've seen is an enormous dependence on single-family housing to support our our vibrant towns. But what we're seeing is that that single-family housing stock has not performed. The grand list, which is the value of the real property taxes that are generated, are flat or falling in 151 municipalities. And that's concerning because with service prices continuing to increase and revenue decreasing, that means that towns may be forced to either increase taxes and or cut services. When it comes to uh, the problems of homelessness, chronic homelessness, that's some place where we've made an awful lot of strides. And maybe we can talk about the success stories now. Absolutely. Through the Reaching Home campaign, we've made great successes, um, which is a broad-based statewide coalition towards ending homelessness and has come up with strategic and tailored uh, solutions towards ending homelessness for discrete populations. Think homeless families or homeless youth, which have very different challenges. But we want to remember that we need to continue to support those who are exiting homelessness so that they're not overburdened by housing prices and fall back into instability. 50% of renters are spending more than 30% of their income on housing, which means that they cannot save for an unplanned expense. 
they cannot save for a rainy day. And furthermore, they can't save for a down payment to buy uh, the single-family housing that we have such a predominance of. But the great news is that towns across the state are becoming much more proactive about planning for and developing their housing stock and diversifying that for more housing options. Aside from the, the pricing of, of the housing options, what are some of the supports that we're talking about for people who are or who are making this transition? They have now some sort of permanent housing, but they want to stay there. They want to be able to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important where that housing is located. And what we're seeing are that more towns are realizing that you can't just put affordable housing um, out in the hinterlands. Affordable housing needs to be integrated into the community. It should be walkable to amenities, proximate to transit. That will open up more opportunities for employment. So it's more about the location and the the complexion of that housing product. And, And do you see that these things are being more coordinated across the state than they have been in the past? Absolutely. Through the support of Governor Malloy and the General Assembly, more has been invested in housing in the last five years than in the last 30 years. And the Department of Housing has produced thousands of affordable units statewide. So that's both in the large cities and in small towns because we know that affordable housing is located predominantly in just 32 of our 169 towns. When you when you say affordable housing, that's something we've gone over in the program uh, before, but maybe you can just explain what exactly you mean by that, because that's probably something different for everybody. A lot of people who uh, have owned single-family homes for a very long time uh, think one thing is affordable, and uh, people who haven't never owned a home in their lives probably think something else is affordable. What do you really mean when you say affordable? Sure. So affordable housing and the language around affordable housing has changed a lot, so it's uh, it's no, no surprise that there's some um, confusion about that term, but it really means that you're not spending any more than 30% of your income on your housing, and that includes um, keeping the lights on, uh, utilities and the rent. Um, if, if you want to join our conversation, it's 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Twitter at Where We Live. We're talking with Katie Schaefer. She's policy analyst with the Partnership for Strong Communities. Coming up in just a little bit, we're going to be talking more about zoning and how that plays into uh, housing in Connecticut. Um, when we talk about some of the, the barriers and some of the problems, there's this notion that uh, Connecticut has urban areas where we have an awful lot of people and we would need a little bit more affordable type housing. There's the hinterlands, as you call them, not necessarily a good place to build for people. It's sort of hard to get out into some very, very rural areas. But we've spent an awful lot of time talking about you know, how can we get some suburban communities, communities that are on main transportation uh, corridors but aren't really set up to have a whole lot of affordable housing. How do we get them more involved? What are the suburbs doing right now, Katie? Some of the suburbs are just doing a phenomenal job with, as I say, being proactive. And I should clarify, when I say the hinterlands, you know, there's not just one housing market for the state. There's not just one housing market for the town. There are often several in a single community. Um, so we want to be strategic about where that housing is located. I mean, there's only you can only be so hinterlandy in Connecticut. I mean, it's a small, <laughs> small state. But anyway, yes, please. Absolutely. So we're seeing towns... Across the state, we see in Old Saybrook, we see Fairfield, we see Newtown, we're seeing Colchester. So all kinds of suburban towns, because there's a diversity in there, that are being much more proactive. So some towns are doing that through uh, the Home Connecticut program and the Incentive Housing Zone program, looking at uh, their housing needs, how their housing supply has changed, and proactively develop zoning that will enable that affordable housing to be developed, and specifically in a mixed-income product Um 
So Simsbury has developed the workforce housing overlay zone. And so they've identified where in town is the best location for affordable housing. And we're seeing a... uh, an interest in developing a more urban complexion, even to small towns. And most of our towns have a small walkable town center, and that can really be leveraged to develop more strategic housing options. So so you've talked about how the towns are doing more and how the state has stepped forward to try to provide help for uh, affordable housing. How about the developers themselves? Is Is there an appetite amongst the people who build housing in Connecticut to build the sort of housing that you think we need? Absolutely. We're seeing across the state and nationwide the demand for multifamily housing is higher than it's been since 1987. The market is crying out for it because we just haven't invested, especially in Connecticut, in multifamily housing. So we're seeing not just the the usual suspects of affordable housing developers, but we're seeing for-profit private developers who have historically only built subdivision because that's what the market demanded, pivoting and really providing that and stepping up and providing that multifamily housing. And it's much, um, there are many more products and tools out there, especially from the state that are more streamlined to support developers to include an affordable component to those projects. Are we still building, though, the traditional subdivision with the big old McMansion on maybe an acre and a half or two acres of, of land? We've looked at the the Warren Group's data on sales prices, and we are seeing that the volume of sales are increasing. However, year over year and through two-thirds of this year, we're seeing housing prices decrease and sales prices decrease. So I don't know if that's where we want to continue to invest our development dollars. Yeah, I, I just wonder because, you know, it's something that we've talked about with uh, with people who, who take a look at long-term trends of, of building. And there is this notion, not just necessarily in Connecticut, but across the nation, where an awful lot of the subdivisions that were built years and years ago for a specific sort of lifestyle are now falling out of favor. They've, they've lost a lot of value. People don't want to necessarily live like that anymore. But that's land that has been, you know, bulldozed over and built on. And the question is, what do you do with some of these single-family homes mm-hmm. built in, on cul-de-sacs when that's not really where the market or the state is necessarily headed. I mean, what's the what's the strategy from a housing perspective to deal with the, the reality of what we've actually built already? Yeah, absolutely. And this is just, this is the beginning of the trend, right? We're seeing the, just the first wave of baby boomers retire now. The strategy is you need to get buyers into town. And how are you going to get buyers into town? You have to develop uh, housing options that meet their needs. A, a young family or a young professional just graduating with education debt not only can't afford a, a four-bedroom home, they're not interested in buying that. They're, they're, they need to save for a down payment. Without an affordable rental that gets them into town, they can't save for that down payment and then buy that baby boomer's home. You know, I think m- most people rented in their lives, and we rented. I know my, my husband and I in West Hartford, we were put down our roots down there, and that's where we ended up buying. I think that's a pattern that most people can relate to. So you need to get the buyers to town. And what about, and this is another uh, thing that we've tackled in this last year, where we've talked an awful lot about housing on the program. Have things gotten better in the rental market? Uh, Because clearly rental prices are far too high for many of the people who would need to rent. Not enough stock of affordable rental properties, especially downstate in places like Fairfield County, where it's just really, really expensive to rent a place. Mm -hmm. So so that's exactly why we need an affordable component to these kinds of projects because the market is so hot for multifamily that the rent is out of reach for so many families and you can't save for a home if you're already if you're paying a mortgage for your rent and half of renters like I said are burdened by their housing costs 
So uh, a last thing for you as we head into to 2016 here, you know, in 2015, Connecticut became the first state in the nation to put an end to chronic homelessness amongst veterans, mm-hmm. which is something that's in- incredibly important and something that I think we should uh, congratulate ourselves for. Um, but there's there's more to be done in, as far as ending chronic homelessness uh, for all Connecticut residents. Is, is that something that happens in 2016 fully? That's the goal. Yeah. So, and, and, and what still needs to happen? You know, we've got a legislative session coming up. We've got an awful lot. We've got a presidential race people are spending a lot of time looking at. I mean, what are the things people would need to focus on to end chronic homelessness by tw- the end of 2016, by the time we sit here next year? Sure. So we need to advance more housing options, specifically supportive housing options, which links uh, families and individuals exiting homelessness into housing that is not only affordable, but has supportive services on site. We need to increase that demand. And those houses, those apartment options need to be located in, in high-resource communities with access to employment or jobs or whatever that family needs to continue to stay stably housed. The Partnership for Strong Communities has released an annual report on housing access and affordability in Connecticut. Uh, here with us in studio is Katie Schaefer, policy analyst with the partnership, to take us through that a bit. If you want to go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, you can find more information. When we come back from our break, we're going to bring some other folks into the conversation. We're going to talk about the impact of zoning laws and zoning regulations on housing in Connecticut. Our contributor, Susan Campbell, who's been writing uh, about this for us throughout the course of this year, will join us as well. You can at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Throughout this year, we've been talking an awful lot about housing and homelessness. And the writer, Susan Campbell, who's been working on this project with us throughout the course of the year, joins us. She's got a a new piece uh, on WNPR.org, which you can find right now on our website. And it takes a look at zoning and the issues that zoning can cause for people's ability to actually be able to afford to live someplace uh, in Connecticut, and it's something that's been going on not just for the last few years, but for many, many decades. Uh, Susan joins us in studio once again. Hi, Susan. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Good morning. Also with us today is Katie Schaefer, who's Senior Policy Analyst with the Partnership for Strong Communities. In just a moment, we'll be bringing in uh, Jack Doherty from Trinity College. But first of all, Susan, you start your story on WNPR.org uh, someplace that we've talked about a little bit, this case of the Scarborough 11. And for those uh, of our listeners who haven't been following this closely, who are the Scarborough 11? And, and what do they have to do with zoning laws in Connecticut? <laughs> Good question. Um, the Scarborough 11 are 11 people, eight adults and three children, who um, have an intentional community in the West End in Hartford. They bought a mansion. They went looking for a place where they could all live together. These are longtime friends and some married couples. And they found a place on Scarborough, which um, is home to some of the largest and most beautiful homes in, in Hartford. Uh, They bought the house and then started to hear from neighbors, and I'm skipping over a lot of the details, but basically um, there was concern on the part of some neighbors that they were violating zoning laws, that the zoning there is incredibly restrictive. I believe it's called R8, which limits the amount of people who are not related to each other who can live in the same dwelling, although you can have unlimited number of domestic servants living there. So that's it's in court. Um, Hartford just released some um, a draft zoning regulations booklet that's quite thick that I've been thumbing through, and uh, maybe that'll address that somewhat. But at this point, um, the case is tied up in court. What's interesting about this is, well, a few of the things you mentioned, including these somewhat antiquated laws that uh, allow you to have a certain number of domestic servants living there, of course, but you can't actually have people who are part of your quote-unquote family. And I'll say quote-unquote because 
This gets a little bit to the issue of what a family is. Maybe that's a conversation for another day, or maybe that's a big part of this conversation, Susan, because as we were just talking about a moment uh, ago, it seems as though Connecticut has an awful lot of homes, whether it's out in the suburbs or in some of our older uh, urban communities that are big, that are sprawling, that frankly, two or three or four or even six related people could never really afford or would want to live in. But here, this group of people have decided to make it affordable for them and live in a way that, that makes sense. Um, some people might say, what's the problem? But I suppose the zoning laws are, are there to make sure that, you know, you don't just turn all these mansions into flop houses where 10, 20, 30 unrelated people can live at any time. It would be a, a stretch to call this place a flop house. You'd have to go some <laughs> distance to turn it into that. Yes. But I, I understand. And, and and actually, Katie's colleague at Partnership, David Fink, says this a lot, that mo- for most families, the, their home is their largest investment. And so if they see something that they believe is threatening that investment, they fight back, and, and understandably so. In this case, the families um, who disagree with the group living there, the Scarborough 11 living there, um, may be motivated by a little more than they want to protect their own investments. It, it looks bad, um, but that that's what often happens. That's what often uh, moves NIMBY movements. Well, what else does this bring up for you, this, this particular story? Because obviously, as I said, it, it has an awful lot to do with what we consider to be a family. It has a lot to do with um, what people view zoning regulations to be there for. And once you start peeling away a little bit of that paper on the edge, it gets into some really ugly stuff. I mean, the language of zoning, as you write about in your piece, is something that has long been very, very exclusionary. It's not about a case like this. It's actually about ways to keep people who don't look like us, whoever we are, uh, out of our neighborhood. It's Aaron Kimball says this at Connecticut Fair Housing. It's it's an us versus them. We want us to live in the same neighborhood, and we want them to live over there. And it's how you define them. In Connecticut, it's very much um, rooted in classism, and and that it's not a far leap from racism, where people who can afford a particular neighborhood can live there, and the rest of you need to live elsewhere. You said you spoke to Aaron Campbell, who's, again, executive director of Connecticut Fair Housing Center, uh, about this notion of maintaining current zoning laws for the sake of, quote, preserving a neighborhood's character. Let's listen to a bit of what you had to say. If you talk to people in the towns that have the the one or two acre zoning laws, what they're saying is that they want to preserve the rural character or the suburban character or whatever name they want to put on it, character of their town. So if you were to put 100 houses on a 10 acre parcel or 100 units is a better way to put it, it's obviously going to be much more densely populated and it's going to look very different than other places in the town. But preserving the rural character or preserving the suburban character of our town assumes that that town has always looked like that and has never looked any different than it does right now. And of course, one of the things that we know is that housing and real estate is nothing but change. And that's Erin Campbell, who is talking to our Susan Campbell. And so, Susan, what she's getting at there is is not some of the zoning restrictions that have to do with how many people live in a place, but the size of the lots. And that actually gets something uh, to something that I was talking uh, about just a moment ago. We've built all of these large homes in the suburbs, and it's as though now that we've built them, we can never live any other way, right? We have these zoning laws, which are now maybe set in stone forever, and that's what she seems to be pushing back against. And that's what Katie addressed as well earlier, that that's not what the market is asking for. The market is not asking for McMansions with large 
lawns. The state is aging. There are people like me who want to downsize, and we don't want to deal with a big house and a big yard. And what's happened over the time is that zoning boards around the state, and each town has one, they've tended to be reactive. They've tended to let the developer come in and say, okay, this is what I'm putting up. Yeah, that looks good. And they they approve it. But now the market is changing and towns that are going to be successful are going to anticipate that change. Katie, can you pick up on that a little bit and and talk that through? Because we mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that uh, your colleague Aaron Kemple talks about there is, you know, every time you decide to build 10 houses on 10 acres and you don't build 100 units on 10 acres, uh, it, it changes the character of the town, certainly, but it really it really rubs up against the notion that you have about being able to densely cluster people so that they can walk toward things, so that we can actually put more people in affordable housing situations. That's exactly the sort of zoning law that keeps us from getting where we need to go in the state. Sure. So the challenge is that we need to diversify our housing housing stock in each of our towns, and towns realize they need to do that because it's it's in their own interest. We know it's the right thing to do, but economically, it's in their own interest. It's been shown that towns that have a more diverse array of housing ch- choices tend to have a, you know, a higher prices because, think about it, there's just a more active economy. Uh, we're uh, getting some phone calls at 860-275-7266 if you want to join us. Aaron Boggs is calling, and Aaron is the executive director of the Open Communities Alliance. And Aaron, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for calling. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, what's on your mind, Erin? What about this conversation did you want to bring forward? Sure. Well, first I want to thank Katie and Susan for their work on this um, and mention, you know, I was one of the original researchers on the zoning study that Susan mentioned in her article looking at all 169 towns, uh, and this was done back in May 2013. And there's a couple of things we need to think about, and we need to think about the amount of affordable housing that we need and, as Katie's saying, where it's located. And partly, as Susan alluded to, there is a racial element to this. On average, blacks and Latinos in Connecticut earn about half of what whites earn. So unless we're talking about affordable housing in a diversity of places, we're not talking about having real housing choice for that group of people and integration. Um, so... You know, we in the study, we really looked at uh, what was going on in different towns, and we discovered that there, actually towns are, are violating Connecticut law, even as it stands. So 25 towns don't make allowance for multifamily housing, even with a special permit. That's actually illegal. Um, 19 towns have residency or employment preferences for affordable housing written into their ordinance, but that can be a problem with the law, too. Um, so, you know, I wanted to mention that and also say that there's some really exciting things going on elsewhere in the country, like in New Jersey um, and California, where they are, they're actually they've done an assessment of the need for affordable housing and then divvied it up among the towns in the state so that there's and, and given them an obligation to meet the need. Um, so I guess my question for for Susan and for Katie is, you know, what are some things that we can be doing to create a carrot and the situation where we have towns um, much more engaged proactively in um, in addressing this. We have Home Connecticut, which is really important, but are there other things we can do that go beyond that? Aaron, thank you so much for your phone call. Susan, you want to take a first crack at that? No, I'd like to throw it to Katie, who would know <laughs> way more about this than I. So there are different carrots and sticks, um, but we, we know that the state's investment has Paid off, and it will continue to pay off. But it, because it's in the state's interest to have a coordinated and a comprehensive plan to support those towns that want to do it, and we're hearing from towns all over the state that want to develop more affordable housing options in their towns. You know, the challenge is they don't necessarily need 
housing dollars from the Department of Housing because, as I said, there's an appetite for this multifamily housing. Those towns might need brownfield remediation. They may need complete streets. They may need infrastructure upgrades. And so we're working with the state to develop, you know, what is that comprehensive support system look like? I want to get uh, to one of our guests here. Um, being quoted in Susan's article, Jack Doherty is Associate Professor of Educational Studies at Trinity College. Uh, and Jack, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you've been researching a, a book for the history of Connecticut zoning laws. Maybe you can talk about where some of these regulations stem from and, and what purpose they served originally, maybe different than the purpose they serve today. Yeah, John, uh, my students at Trinity College and I, we went back in time, back to the 1920s, trying to figure out how did we wind up with the zoning laws that we have today. And uh, Connecticut uh, granted uh, all the towns uh, permission to zone their land development um, in 1924, uh, kind of West Hartford uh, is the first town to actually take advantage of this. So we looked at that 1924 document, uh, uh, very disturbed to see how people are talking at the time. And remember, West Hartford at that time, to go back, it's, it's a, a largely agricultural area. Uh, we have 60,000 residents in West Hartford now. Back then, there's only 8,000 residents. But it's the fastest-growing home construction area. It's got the largest number of building permits in the 1920s. So we look at the zoning documents that the West Hartford town leaders were adopting at the time, and, and you're right, on one hand, there's a very benevolent intent. Um, the, the purpose of zoning, on one hand, is to, is to sort of like have orderliness, orderliness, efficiency, safety, you know, separating residential from industrial. You don't want a factory next to a daycare center. Um, but here's the twist. At the same time, when you look back in 1924, the suburban leaders were drawing lines that would restrict who could afford to buy homes in certain neighborhoods? So West Hartford got carved up in the 1920s into different districts. Back then, they called them like letter A, B, C, and D. And the rules that people were sketching for suburbs at that time would say things like this. Um, back in the 1920s, the most exclusive area, that sort of uh, neighborhood A, it had rules that said things like to construct a single-family home, you had to have at least uh, 9,000 square feet of, of acreage. Um, and you couldn't uh, effectively build a two-family home in that slot. The, the, the report actually does say very clearly, quote, under most conditions, it would be uneconomic to build two-family homes in what they were designing to be sort of more upper-class neighborhoods. But this is what set exclusionary zoning into motion. It was a set of rules that basically made it high-priced housing in certain neighborhoods or in a whole certain town. Hmm. So is exclusionary zoning, um, Jack and, and, and Susan, is it uh, across the board bad? I mean, is it a bad thing for the state? My first crack at this is whenever you're writing rules into town laws that effectively prohibit all of our citizens from having a chance of moving into a neighborhood or into a town, then you're setting up rules that basically separate us from them, like one of your prior commenters said. Mm. Susan, what do you think about that? I agree. If um, I, I heartily encourage everyone to read Lisa Prevost's Snob Zones, a 2013 book where she looked at exclusionary zoning. And Connecticut played such a large role in there. Um, she looked at Greenwich and Darien, and, but it's not just there. And it's this attempt, I agree entirely with Jack, it's this attempt to keep people apart in a way that, that actually ends up stifling towns. I mean, towns die on the vine when they try to be so exclusive. You cannot continue that way. The market won't allow it. 
We've had uh, Lisa on the program talking about that book before, and it is a very interesting insight into the way we've used zoning laws in the state. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. John's in Farmington. Hi, John. Go ahead. Uh, Yes, good morning. Um, It's a fascinating discussion, and one of the things that – there's actually two pieces. One is uh, that that in the state of Connecticut right now, if you own in a number of towns, if you own a two-family house, the, the taxes have doubled maybe tripled over the last 10 years. Rents haven't, but there's a natural base in some towns, say like West Hartford, of $500,000 a unit in taxes alone. So that, and then, so you don't, you're not going to get a reduction in rents. And in some places, Bloomfield, there's a, they can get equal rents because their subsidies, they're subsidized by the state for subsidized rents. So I don't see that, um, based on the way that we prop, we have ta- property taxes, that that there's a there's going to be a, a reduction in rents given the fact that there's such a there's such a huge um, burden and, and on you, the landlords. Yeah, and j- j- just to be clear, when you're talking about a five hundred thousand dollar property, you're talking about how, how much in taxes, John? All right, you're you're probably talking that's a two family house. Yep. So in two family houses, in some places in you know West Hartford, and even in Hartford, in the in the in the West End, the Scarborough section, you got I mean you've got a lot of tax burden depending on your mill rates. Um, so well, it was it's just looking at the fact that that while this is I think it's an important discussion, is that and and especially when you come back to the zoning because again zoning had a lot of different during the Second World War there was material um, shortages. So they use that as a way to do uh, in a number of communities. They used it as a way to for for uh, material and short supply. You could only build houses under certain square footage. So mm. there's a number of different reasons that Connecticut has its zoning. We have Collinsville and Terraceville. Those are all company old mill towns where the companies built the housing stock, and some of that stuff's 150 years old. Well, uh, John, John, thank you very much for your phone call. Katie, I'm just wondering if you can quickly address the, the tax part of his question, and I, I may actually go to Jack about the little bit of the history, but go ahead. Sure. So that was, that was a great and loaded question, John. Thank you. So it uh, touches on a lot of different points. He's right that uh, rents are continuing to increase. We have the eighth highest rental market. You need to earn about $24.29 an hour to rent a typical two-bedroom. Half of the occupations in Connecticut are making less than $20 an hour. Um, we need to advance uh, the diversification of our housing stock so that we can uh, get people to town, get them involved in the community, rent, and eventually buy in that community. So that will help with turnover, uh, turnover and churn in the in the housing market, and then you know in those products where a landlord wants to include an affordable component, there are programs at the state to um, offset that gap, and those are streamlined. And we really encourage people to to give them a call. I, just uh, Jack, I wanted you to address the last part of what John had to say there uh, about the history of maybe some of how we got the housing stock that we have. That's another piece of this, right? We 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 build over time for various reasons, and and we have an awful lot of housing stock that's that's built in places because of zoning laws, but is also built because of the style of building at the time, and and that plays into all these things, including what sorts of houses we have to choose from. Exactly, John. Uh, when I look at zoning laws from the 1920s going forward. Uh, going back to that West Hartford story that sort of sets it in motion, more and more suburbs um, or, or what we call, you know, outlying towns that were suburbanizing in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they're adopting zoning laws, and they're able to do something that built-out areas couldn't do. 
Um, there is zoning in Hartford. There is zoning in other urban dense areas, but they can't change what's already built. So zoning is most powerful in Connecticut when it's shaping who's doing what with undeveloped land. Hmm. Uh, you were involved with a project between Trinity and the Connecticut uh, Fair Housing Center. We put together uh, interactive maps and charts showing the state's zoning laws and the amount of affordable housing in each town. Um, when you look at all the patterns on a, on a map, and it's hard for us to visualize a map on the radio, but maybe you can just explain some of the patterns and maybe some things that, uh, that you, you noticed. Uh, first, uh, let's, uh, it's called the Connecticut Zoning Initiative. So any of your listeners can just Google that three words, Connecticut Zoning Initiative, and they can see the maps that my uh, students at Trinity College put together with the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. And quick shout-out to people, uh, uh, Trinity students, uh, Fanula Darby-Hudgens and uh, the intern Lisa Dabrowski at the time, who did the grunt work on this. Picture them going through Connecticut's uh, 169 towns and actually finding the actual zoning language in, try, in organizing it for 169 towns and actually trying to code which towns allow two-family homes or which towns allow this or that. It's, an, it's a monumental job. No one had done it in 30, 40 years because the state of Connecticut doesn't collect all of this zoning data in a centralized place. Remember, back in 1924, the state said each town has its own authority to design its own zoning plan. So when you look at the map of Connecticut, you'll see urban centers um, uh, like Hartford that have one set of rules, but in general you'll see as you go out into the inner ring and outer ring suburbs around those centers, you'll see different sets of rules getting back to exactly what Aaron Boggs was talking about. You're more likely to find towns that have restrictions either flat out against affordable housing or have written the rules in such a way that make it very difficult for, um, for anyone to sort of economically build anything other than single-family homes. I want to go to Dave, who's calling from Berlin. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Um, hi. Look, I, I think um, you know, you're kind of looking at it from the wrong angle. I mean, what essentially happens is when you increase the density, you increase the cost to the town of, of housing these people without increasing the income. A, a typical two-bedroom condo in some towns might bring $2,500 in taxes. A, a three-bedroom house might bring $8,000 in taxes, but the condo has a single parent with two kids in it, and the single-family house is paying three times as much taxes as two parents with maybe two kids in it. So there's the same drain on the school system with less money into the town. There's the same amount cost, police enforcement, and, again, less money in the town. And unless you can take it at the base rate, which is dealing with the cost of government and the cost of government, you're going to end up in the same kind of situation that it's just impossible to finance that kind of housing you're trying to put into these towns. And just one other thing, yesterday you had an NPR had a show about the effect of adding affordable housing to a town named Yonkers in Yonkers, New York, where they would actually force people they're out of affordable housing into their town, and they get a court order. And the dropped housing values between five and eight percent, they were saying. Mm. So that's five to eight thousand dollars you're asking people to give away in in pursuit of, I guess, the greater good. Oh, well, so, hey, Dave, hang on the line here, because I'd like Katie to just re- respond to some of this. So, I mean, obviously, Dave, Dave makes a really good point. He's talking about uh, you know, places where you've got a lot more people with kids and a lot more, uh, you know, uh, 
people trying to get into the school system. Uh, there's more need for police. There's more need for roads. We got to pay for all this, and we have less less taxes to pay for it. How do we do that? Uh, so I, I, I appreciate the points that Dave is bringing up, and I just wanted to clarify a few things. So if we're, we're talking about building apartments for seniors who are downsizing and millennials and families just starting out. We're talking about one- and two-bedroom apartments. And as far as the effect on school enrollments go, is that they have no effect, and that's been proven time and time again. So a one-bedroom apartment brings 0.04 school children into the system. A two-bedroom apartment brings 0.26 children into the school system, so one in every four. Furthermore, school enrollments are projected to decline in 153 municipalities, and that should be very concerning for towns because the price of keeping those school open, schools open are going to continue to increase, and adding more children uh, into a declining uh, school district is not going to affect those, the, those challenges of keeping up with prices. It, it Maybe you know, the bigger challenge is, is just that we have these incredibly declining enrollments in schools. We just, we're losing our population, and our population is aging rapidly. So we should be welcoming any and all development um, that is uh, tailored and appropriate for those communities because we need young people and the next generation of families to come into towns. And, and I think, Susan, that's one of the things, before we, before we end our segment here— it, Whenever we're having a conversation like this and whenever we talk about, say, property tax reform, like there's the way things are and then there's the way things will be in the future. And it's not so much a, trying to create a, a utopia of what we believe a certain housing stock or zoning laws or anything would be, but it's more just dealing with these really massive demographic changes that we're seeing here. I mean, Connecticut is getting super old really fast. We're losing a lot of young people uh, from our state. We're not uh, replacing that population. And so that's the reality of the of the future that we're dealing with. It is very much. And I think it is it is difficult to talk about this if you're not going to talk about the financial uh, aspect of it. And, and that is, even if you stay entirely on that, I would also encourage people to Google Mount Laurel because similar concerns uh, surrounded a, a project that was going to go into Mount Laurel, New Jersey, that the property taxes would go up, that there'd be too many children, crime would increase. And what was found in that particular, and they studied this a lot, that what was found in that particular development was everyone's fears were based on nothing. Nothing happened as as they expected. So I understand worrying about taxes. I understand worrying about property values. But the numbers don't show that that's anything to fear. But before we go, Susan, you've been working on this for some time with us, and you've got more stories to write for us about housing and homelessness. As you look back in 2015, has it been a a good year as far as where we've come, from where we started at the beginning of this year, or maybe even when you started sort of on your mission over the course of the last couple of years to, to tell more stories about housing and homelessness? Do you feel positive about where we are right now? I do, and I'm not that optimistic a person. If you look at Connecticut, <laughs> you can see that that they have effectively ended chronic homelessness among veterans. There, There's a goal to end chronic homelessness period in a very short period of time. We do still have challenges in regard to affordable housing, and, and precisely because of the concerns that people have expressed, it's just a matter of overcoming those fears with data and understanding that this works elsewhere. It can work here. Susan Campbell is a contributor to WNPR.org. She's also a columnist for the Hartford Current. She's been covering housing and homelessness for us and will continue uh, to in 2016. If you want to read her recent story about zoning laws and regulations in the state, it's WNPR.org. Uh, Susan, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks also to Katie Schaefer, policy analyst with the Partnership for Strong Communities. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Jack Doherty, Associate Professor of Educational Studies at Trinity College. When we come back, we're going to be learning about a new tool from ProPublica that helps people 
find out a little bit more about some of the charities that they give to. That's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, the year's winding down, and we're going to start to look back at the news of 2015. It was filled with preoccupied porcupines and not-so-permanent fiscal crises. Our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, will recap the week's and the year's news. What were some of your big stories of 2015? Hope you can join us tomorrow on the show. The holiday season, of course, is upon us. Have you figured out, though, which nonprofits you're going to give to this year? If not, don't fret. ProPublica has a tool that might help you figure things out. CeCe Way is a news applications developer at ProPublica who joins us right now. If you want to join us, uh, 860-275-7266, as we talk about nonprofits and what we can learn about the best nonprofits to give to. CeCe, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first of all, what are some common mistakes people make when giving to nonprofits uh, this time of year? Yeah, so one common mistake, and I think this isn't uh, the fault of donors at all, it's just something that we haven't been taught to look for, is not reading and understanding the fine print. So a lot of times you'll hear the phrase 90% or some percent of every dollar will go towards our programs. And what we don't think to look for is every dollar of what. Charities will specify whether or not it's every dollar spent or every dollar donated. And if it's donated, that's what we're thinking about, right? I'm donating a dollar, and out of that dollar, 90 cents goes directly to a program. But if it's actually out of every dollar spent, you really have no idea how much of your money is actually going to go to the program specifically. Mm. And is there a way to learn where that fine print is or know exactly which fine print to pay attention to? Because there is an awful lot of fine print. (laughs) Yes, that is a great question. Um, I would say a lot of places mm, have that part pretty – either they have it prominently, but you sort of just gloss over it when you're reading, or um, I would say – Go to the website, and it shouldn't be something that's hidden in, like, a terms of service language that's, like, you know, um, pages of fine print. But it should be somewhere prominently on their website. And if it's not, I would actually just call the charity that you're thinking about giving to and ask them directly. And so we're talking with ProPublica about their charity navigator tool with C.C. Way, who's a news applications developer there. So, so what all do you provide in Charity Navigator that will help people vet some of these nonprofits? Yeah, so our tool, um, it's called Nonprofit Explorer, and we made it originally because uh, 990s are something that every charity has to uh, give every year to the IRS. Um, And the only limitation there is if you're thinking about giving to a really small charity that's rather new, if they don't make $50,000 per year, then they don't have to file any information. But that's a very small portion of nonprofits. Um, For the rest, you can basically go to our site, and what we do is we provide a digital version of all of the data that the IRS releases that way. And so you can see at a glance, really, how much money does this charity make every year? How much money do they spend on programs? How much money do they give to their executives? And then if you really, if you really want to do a deep dive yourself, we also provide the raw files that these organizations file to the government themselves. And you can look through year after year and look specifically, how much does the CEO literally make in 2013? And you can go through the files yourself and look through. How big a deal is CEO compensation? I mean, how, how big a red flag is that for people to look for? Yeah, that, that is a great question. So it's not automatically the case that if you see a large number, it's necessarily a bad thing. And the way that the IRS does this, right, is they call it basically a reasonable salary. And so you want people to help run your charity who would do a good job at a comparable place that maybe wasn't a nonprofit. However, what you can do is you can compare how much they make 
to how much um, other CEOs make at similarly sized charities. And if that number is really outrageous or large, or the other thing to look for is if it's outrageously low. So some places you might actually see zero dollars listed, and that's something that um, can have many, many reasons, but that's sort of a key for you to think about, hmm, like why would this be the case? Is it because this is a small Girl Scouts club, right, in my local area, and so maybe they are all volunteers, or is it kind of suspicious that no one's getting paid, and like how, are, how else are they being compensated? And you can dig around for that information. Another big piece of this and something that's been written about a lot is investigations into professional fundraisings. There was a, an investigation by the Tampa Bay Times and the Center for Investigative Reporting that identified nonprofits that raise millions via professional fundraisers. And often, CC, the, these fundraisers are getting an awful lot of the money that is given. Yes, it's crazy. Um, that's something that is still mind-blowing to me. They actually found one particular organization in Lawrenceville, Georgia, that paid fundraisers basically 90% of all of the money that they were fundraising, right? And as someone who's giving to charities, you certainly don't want that to happen. Um, so that's a line that you can just look up right in the 990, how, how much money is being paid to professional fundraisers. And you can see, am I comfortable with that number or am I not? So there's that 990 form, and that can help you root out some of the information, but it's, it's not everything, and it's maybe a little bit hard to, uh, to navigate for some people. Talk us through that 990 form and what's really important to look at if you're just going to look at uh, that particular form. Yeah, absolutely. So when you go through it, basically there's many, many parts, and you don't have to look at everything. Um, at the very beginning, you'll see really basic logistical information about the 990s. Um, and that's sort of like, you know, where is this place? Um, how, much, uh, how much money are they doing in all of their total summaries? You can skip that. What you can do is first um, there's a section called Part 3, and that's usually just right on the second page. And that's where the nonprofit has to tell the IRS, what is our mission? Why are we here? And oftentimes if you're confused about literally what a charity offers and what kinds of programs they actually provide, this is the place where they're pretty specific about it in a way that's concise. They're not going on for pages and pages. And so you can sort of get more information about how the charity works there. And then if you skip a few pages, there's going to be what looks like a table. And it'll be really obvious because it's going to be um, all of the names of people on the left and then how much they make on the right. And that's how you know you've gotten to the executive compensation section. And they'll list for every single charity the top 10 salaries and what the titles of these people are. Um, and then down from there, if you look through... Uh, I like to do actually skip all the way to the bottom. Um, some charities have 990 appendices where they list sort of in-depth more information, either about their programs or about how they operate. And you can sort of, um, that's sort of more plain language, almost like an essay format that you can read through as well. And if there's anything specific that you want to know out of the 990, um, our tool actually pulls a lot of the things I talked about earlier, like how much they spend on programs. Um, out so that you can just see it on the site without needing to dig through the entire form to get that info. Again, the tool is Nonprofit Explorer, and we're talking with Cece Ray away from uh, ProPublica. They put this together to help you vet some of the nonprofits you might give to this time of the year. Before we run out of time, I should ask, are there any other uh, good vetting tools that are out there? I mean, yours isn't the only one, not the only way that we can try to root through some of uh, what's in the nonprofit world. What else do you suggest? Yes, absolutely. Um, if you're like me and when you're thinking about who do I want to donate to and you don't have someone specific in mind, but you know you want to spend some of your money for a good cause, I actually recommend going to this website called Give Well. And they're relatively new. And what they do is something 
that I think is quite revolutionary that we haven't done in the nonprofit sort of um, evaluation research area for a long time, which is they look at the program specifically and they ask, has anyone studied these programs to find out whether or not they're effective? And have they studied them over and over again and gotten great results? And they look at whether or not a charity tracks that information and knows whether or not they're spending money efficiently on good programs. And you can sort of get a really in-depth report from them, and they recommend charities that have been completely transparent, open their books, and allowed GiveWell to make that assessment. And you can go there and sort of see who they recommend, what types of charities you're interested in, and know that the money that you're giving them will be spent on really well-researched and evidence-backed for success programs. And, and that's such a great idea. We just have less than a minute left, but I should ask you, you know, we talk an awful lot about maybe eating locally or finding a, a small business because we know the purveyor, right? Is it kind of like that with charities? I mean, do you find that smaller charities where you get to know the person is actually a better place to spend your money, or is there some value in these big multinational charities that are very, very well-known probably have a lot of overhead, too? Yeah, I think it goes both ways. I would say if you know someone yourself, that's definitely the perfect starting point for you to start researching that place. And if you want to give locally to help your local community, that's a great idea, and that's a great way to get started. At the same time, a smaller charity is not going to have as many resources to do things like research what is the best possible way we could do this. And so if you're looking to give to a really large organization, definitely don't go off reputation. I would do some research, check on them on GiveWell, check on them on their 990s, and see what's going on first. CC Way is a news applications developer at ProPublica. They put together this great tool that we have on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. CC, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Sarah Flaherty. Continue this conversation, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.